So I was on TikTok. As we both often are. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Often we're both on TikTok at the same time on the same account. Yes. uh, Which is my favorite (laughs) friend activity. Um, But the point of this story (laughs) is that I was watching a Hank Green video about him going to a college and, you know, someone asked the predictable, like, what advice would you give to a a human that is me? Um, And he said – That one of the big issues right now is everybody feels as if they have to care about everything and the internet kind of puts you in that position. Mm -hmm. And caring about all of the broken things all of the time makes it really hard to do anything about it because you get stuck in like anger or sadness or just overwhelm. You're just overwhelmed by things to do so you end up doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And he put it so much better than I ever could. But he said, you know, we just need to choose the things that we care about and be grateful that there's someone else taking care of the other things that we can't do and trust that they will be also grateful to us and kind of treat it more like a symbiosis. I love that. I love that too. And I was thinking about what that means for us Mm because, you know, we make content. We exist on the internet. You and I talk about it all the time. But I feel an immense pressure to care about everything. Yes. But Willing and Fable has allowed me to, like, narrow my focus and say, like, I care about the max number of stories being accessible to the max number of people. Because I believe that knowing stories makes it easier to come together. And if I can just focus on that, someone else can solve everything else. (laughs) For me, it's definitely also telling stories for people who haven't had their stories told as much mm-hmm. or yeah. um, revealing a side of things we don't normally talk about. I think that's really important to see as much as possible. I want our listeners to, whenever they can, see themselves reflected in the work that we're doing um, because it's it makes you feel less alone. And so to build a community that focuses on that and to see it come to life, that's been the thing that I'm anchoring to. I would definitely agree with that. I wish I could remember where I learned it. There's definitely some corner of the internet, but someone said that it is okay to be joyful in the work that you do to try to make the world better in fighting against something bad. Like it's okay to be enthusiastic about it and happy about it. And that's something that mm-hmm. when it's a horrible, you know, oppressive thing, like what's going on in Iran or Ukraine, it's It's impossible to imagine joy. Yes. But when I think about, like, our little corner of the world, I love research. Mm -hmm. I love learning and I love talking to you. So if, like, that can be fun and also maybe do a little good, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be upset. (laughs) (laughs) No, I would definitely not be upset. (laughs) Hey, if my existence could be a net positive for the planet I wouldn't be upset. I'd allow it. I suppose. <laughs> Hi, I'm Rowan Hall. And I'm Tracy Harrison. And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Every week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support the show, please hit subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're using. It really helps us out. 
Mm-hmm. Or you can head to our website. There's tons of fun things to do. We'd love for you to check out our new Vaporwave merch. We'd love for you to check out our About page because it is about us. Uh, <laughs> and that's always yes. a good time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the least clicked on page on our website if I look at the stats. And I think it's because we just talk so gosh darn much. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) People either, I guess, jump headfirst into this podcast without knowing anything about us. Or uh, once they already would go to our website, know everything they could possibly need to know about us. They're like, say less. No, really. Say less. (laughs) Say less. So the other way that you can support our show is by lighting a candle or some incense, sitting on the floor of your room and meditating on all the good, spooky vibes you'll be bringing into the world this autumn season. But no matter what you do, we're just happy to have you with us for this episode. On that note, I live in a place now that is primarily carpeted, and I am a circle of candles on the floor girl. Mm-hmm. Shockingly. Um... I just had to buy a box of remote-operated battery tea lights because I still need to do circles of candles on the floor. There is work that I cannot speak of that must be done, but it's a fire hazard on carpet. (laughs) I had never thought to buy battery-operated candles for that. I just... I just have carpet everywhere in my house and don't do candles on the floor. And I feel as though I am missing out. I can confirm. Uh, if you get the ones with the little remote, then you can put them mm-hmm. up high and then never worry about having to reach them. They can just be up high. And then you go, Beep. Oh, my God. And then I can have all the ambiance of my dreams. That's my problem is I never feel like plugging things in and uh, out and all that. Tracy, you have not clearly – you've been slacking on your communications with the undead and mm-hmm. your communications with demons. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you would know by now <laughs> <laughs> Maybe my demons aren't just as good about telling me to get things with remotes. They're, my demons get me. The way they get at me is by making me use things with wires. Oh, my God. We are unhinged. Hey, you know what's not unhinged, I guess? Sort of getting a head start on your holiday shopping. Uh, she found her way. She I, made it. I got there to the transition. Um, It's the spooky time of year. I do so much shopping at this time of year. It's truly unfortunate. Uh, But none of it's Christmas shopping. So don't be like me. Get ahead. Do be better. (laughs) Head to Greenleaf Geek, our longtime sponsor, who has adventure calendars. Yes. They are exactly like the advent calendars that you are thinking of, but they're better because they are filled with nerdy dice TTRPG-related goodness. And I just ran a one-shot the other day, so I'm really looking forward to the one-shot that's in there because mm-hmm. your girl needs it. There's 24 compartments. It's the kind of present that if you get it for an adult, their eyes will light up with the warm glow of their childhood being revived. Because yes. you didn't just get them one gift. You got them 24 little gifts. Truly. Like, I mean, this is... These things sell out fast, so if you are interested in getting one, please go to greenleafgeek.com and use the code FABLEADVENT, that's F-A-B-L-E-A-D-V-E-N-T, no spaces, and you get $5 off your order, and trust us, go shop soon. Yeah, sometimes you really can have quality and quantity together. (laughs) Yes. 
So if you want to shop the rest of Greenleaf Geek, you all know that we've been shopping there for quite a long time. We have custom-made mm-hmm. dice from Leah. We give all of her curated dice to the new players in our campaigns. Use the code FABLE, that's F-A-B-L-E, for 10% off your order from the rest of the site. Some restrictions apply. Before we jump into the official topic for today's episode, we have an answer to a question that we asked about, can you use dental floss for embroidering? 10 out of 10 best patrons ever. Yes. Within hours of the episode being released, Hattie, one of our patrons, thank you, Hattie, sent us this message. Fun fact, on the topic of embroidering with dental floss, that particular medium can be very useful for high-stress repairs and attaching buttons to knit-slash-crochet sweaters. Due to the fact that dental floss is plastic, it can hold up to strain and stretch a bit as needed while still keeping the buttons attached. I have used it for repairs on denim before, and it wears and washes fine, but I definitely prefer doing repairs with embroidery floss or scraps of cotton simply out of texture preference. My favorite thing about this is even though there is regular dental floss, all I can imagine is if you repair your jeans with this, every time you do your wash, everything's just a little minty fresh. A little minty. (laughs) Delightful. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking the time to answer. We really appreciate it. I I genuinely forgot about the question and was like, well, I'll never know. And, And lo and behold... Now I have the answer. I did not forget, even though I kind of asked on a goof, but I never expected an answer. And it's one of those things where it's too fun to Google. You know, you don't want to Google Mm -hmm. it. You want someone in life to tell you, hey, Trace, uh, I don't want to Google. I need someone in life to tell me things. (laughs) What's up? Okay. We just got off of two weeks of Rowan doing her two-parter on The Unknown Woman of the Sin. Mm Mm-hmm. And I went to her and said, can I do a variety show? That sounds really fun. (laughs) Which is so funny because everyone knows that I do own variety shows. You own them. They're your brand. (laughs) No, but you helped me through it. And so I had a lot of fun and I played with the ideas and I settled on Haunted America. So these are all haunted homes and hotels across America. And the first one we're starting out with is very near and dear to your heart, Rowan. Mm -hmm. It is the Chelsea Hotel. No, stop. Yes, it is. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So before we jump into the hotel and talking about it, I want you to share with everyone your connection to this place. Oh, I'm red in the face. Okay. Um, uh, So when my parents would go into New York for work trips, we always stayed at the Hotel Chelsea. So... Like, the joke in my family when I was little was, like, move over, Eloise, at the plaza. It's Rowan at the Chelsea because I've been going there since I was little. and Really little. Little. Um, and it is this – well, I don't want to – I don't want to spoil anything that you're going to say. Okay. Pipe up as you start having fun stories to tell, but know that Rowan okay. has fun stories to tell. <laughs> so Trav D, writing for the Chelsea Community News, describes the hotel perfectly – stating that the Chelsea Hotel is a 12-story Queen Anne-style curiosity which looks the gothic part with its wrought iron balcony railings, peaked roofs, red brick facade, and chimneys. Those antique architectural elements are due to the fact that the building dates to 1884. It is, in fact, considered the second oldest extant skyscraper in New York City after the Temple Court building. Back in the day, 12 stories was the height to be a skyscraper. No joke. Mm-hmm. That's hilarious. 
Well, okay. So the Chelsea Hotel was sold uh, roughly about, I think, almost a decade ago now. Uh, so it used to be a hotel, but also people lived there. It was pretty even mm-hmm. mix. And the cool thing about people living there is they would decorate their hallways and kind of do their own thing. Oh, fun. And the famous thing about the Chelsea is that artists would like leave their art. They'd pay with their art or a lot of big artistic things were done there. I'm sure you're going to talk about it. Yes. Um, But the – before it was sold, the 13th floor, the rooftop, was a like a hair salon owned by this one person – and it was very expensive, and it was this whole garden. I never went up there. I tried to sneak up once, but the door was locked. Sorry, Aww. person. Um, <laughs> and they would give you champagne. And it has this big, not spiral, like metal spiral, but like mm-hmm. spiral staircase going up the center, going around and around and around. Oh, my God. It's fantastic. So the building, as you said, was originally created as a co-op, but was converted to a hotel in 1905. But many guests continued to remain at the hotel long term. During the 20th century, it became known as a preferred stopping place for artists and creative types of all sorts, lending credence to its motto, quote, a rest stop for rare individuals. It doesn't get better than that. It doesn't. That's so good. Some of the famous occupants of the Chelsea Hotel have included, but are not limited to, Mark Twain, Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, Charles Bukowski, Jackson Pollock, Andy Warhol, Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, Leonard Cohen, The Grateful Dead, Tom Waits, Dennis Hopper, and Madonna. And Rowan. And Rowan and her parents. (laughs) Many artists have memorialized the hotel in their work, such as two that are very near and dear to my heart. Leonard Cohen's song, Chelsea Number 2, or Joni Mitchell's song, Chelsea Morning. Mm, Joni. I have Leonard Cohen and Joni Mitchell on vinyl for my record player, and they're two of my most played vinyls. I love that. I bet they sound really good on vinyl. Yeah. Oh, because, well, one of the Leonard Cohen ones is actually a new print because you can't buy Leonard Cohen anywhere. It's sold out all the time. Of course. Uh, But the Joni Mitchell is an original from, I think it was printed in the 80s. Yum. Yum. Mm-hmm. Okay. But the hotel was not always a happy and creative and Rowan-filled space to be in. <laughs> there is some dark history to the hotel's past. In 1912, survivors of the Titanic were briefly put up in the hotel given its close proximity to the Chelsea Piers. Seriously? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was right on the water, and so it was easy to get access to and have people stay there. That makes so much sense, but... Right? What? But you wouldn't put the pieces together, right? Yeah. Society girl Elmira Wilcox died of an overdose of sleep medication in 1908, four years prior to the sinking of the Titanic. The following year, artist Frank Kavecki died by suicide after he was robbed of money belonging to the Hungarian Sick and Benevolent Society. Like, he was so upset that he was robbed? I think so. Oh, that's... Oh, tragic. I know. Moving forward in 1922, Atelka Graf, the daughter of a well-to-do silk merchant, cut off her own hand (gasps) with industrial shears before she jumped out a fifth-floor window. Oh, my God! No, that one's brutal. That commitment! How? I mean, it's got to be a one or done. It's got to be... No way! I don't think so. I don't think you can 
hands are not easy to... There's a lot of bone. There's a lot of stuff going on in your wrist. Oh, okay. Moving forward about 30 years, Dylan Thomas was living there in 1953 when he drank his fatal 18 whiskeys at the nearby White Horse Tavern. Famously, Sid Vicious and his girlfriend Nancy Spungen were living at the hotel when the latter was fatally stabbed in 1978. Mm. Vicious died of a heroin overdose four months later. And these events were portrayed in Alex Cox's 1986 movie, Sid and Nancy, shot on location at the hotel. That story's tragic. It really is. And I didn't realize it was shot on location at the hotel. It doesn't surprise me. That's one of those ones where it, I imagine it was just so easy to get the hotel to shoot in that, like, why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. In 86, I wonder if New York was charging quite as much just to exist as a film crew in New York. <laughs> oh, it definitely wasn't charging as much as it does now. And uh, it was definitely a different city back in that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My mom lived in New York and she would carry a walking stick everywhere she went because no one messes with anyone who has a walking stick. Mm, that's smart. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my parents used to talk about going into the city in the in the you know seventies and eighties, and that was before the noise ordinances and when everything was a lot more chaotic and it wasn't a glamorous place to be. My dad likes to talk about how you wouldn't even step foot on Broadway back then, and now you can't afford to walk past Broadway. No, you're not even allowed to look at Broadway anymore, actually, unless you pay a fee. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they charge you five cents a minute, but uh, with the next bill that's going to be passed, it's probably going to be raised to seven at least. <laughs> Ed Hamilton's Living with Legends Chelsea Hotel blog is a delightful resource for all sorts of Chelsea Hotel stories. He describes accounts of people seeing the vain woman at the hotel, which is a Victorian spirit who primps in front of the fifth floor mirror. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. I want to meet her. I want to be her. <laughs> <laughs> there are two wolves inside of you. <laughs> The wolves are both loud. Yes. <laughs> okay. Another apparition is this blurry figure that walks right through a bedroom wall. Ooh. Keep in mind, when talking about ghost stories, a lot of times the idea is that the spirit is trapped in the architecture of their time, so any changes in the architecture, and they'll follow the old pattern, not the new one. I love that. Blurry figures, not how I want to come back, but if that's my only option, I'd still take that. <laughs> Real quick, kind of fun anecdotal story about the Chelsea. Ooh, so, yeah. my mom, who is a painter, we stayed there once, and our favorite room there had, instead of just being one hotel room, it had multiple rooms to go in. It had this really out of tune, upright piano. <gasps> and so, my mom just hung art in the room once when we stayed she just put it up and not long later the hotel was sold and all of the art that was in the hotel is in a collection now that is locked and no one has seen so <gasps> we're all wondering if her painting made it or if someone took it down when they cleaned the room or if anyone oh even noticed because there was so much weird art around the hotel um and in this one area of the hotel there was a wing that was kind of more residential. And I just used to skulk around all the time, as you do. Mm -hmm. um, and there was a secret floorboard that you could pull up. And inside, it was all decorated. And there were little knickknacks and things inside of it. And I would always take some oh things God. out and put some new things in. Wait, what are some of the things you took out and or put in? 
once there was a pack of Twinkies. I did not take those, but I do remember them. And they were newish, <laughs> so you got to yeah. know that someone – they're not going to go bad. Uh, mm-hmm. There were little notes written in there a lot of the time. Uh, I put a skeleton key in once because uh, my parents just had a lot of them laying around. Uh, there was a little toy, but it wasn't like a doll, a scary doll. It was like a, like a McDonald's toy size, but like plasticky mm-hmm. kind of. Um, mm. And it was all decorated inside with the paints and fabrics and stuff. So it looked like a little box. Oh, that is so cute. Isn't that charming? <laughs> I love that. It's It was the coolest place. And actually, so it's been sold. I think it's opening up soon if it hasn't already. But I read this article about it. And there it is someone who still lives there because they couldn't kick out the residents because mm. New York doesn't really allow that kind of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. There is still someone who lives there as of, I think this article came out in 2022 in like June or July of this year. Uh, okay. They pay $1,100 for an apartment with no kitchen in New York, in Chelsea. I would pay that. I don't need a kitchen. Yeah. Here's the thing with, with places that don't have a kitchen. Get a table, put a microwave, a hot plate on top, a mini fridge underneath, and you're golden. Everyone knows that ovens are just for shoes, a la Sex in the City in New York. <laughs> My sister uh, lived in a, an apartment in college that was a house converted, and they – they had their own kitchen, but her bedroom was what used to be the kitchen, and she had an unplugged oven in there, and cool. she stored all of her textbooks in it. Yes, good. I love that. <laughs> this article that came out, the people who own it now were talking about how, you know, they're trying to walk the line between, like, maintaining the artsiness but making it sophisticated. And I'm like, oh, so mm. you have now made it too expensive for anyone other than rich people who want to feel cool to go there. Understood. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I hope the ghosts get them. What? Who said that? A ghost. Oh, no. Oh, a voice. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for including that. Speaking of ghosts, there is a tale of a skeleton who appears in photographs but wasn't there before. Appears as a skeleton? Supposedly. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> I think you're going to like this one. This seems like someone you would have been friends with as a kid. There's a Depression-era child who kicked a woman in the shins before vanishing. <laughs> I, that, there's so much going on in everything you just said. One, the implication that I would have been friends with a Depression-era child. Yeah, of course. Yes, of course Two, you would. a ghost being corporeal enough to kick someone in the shins and maybe it hurting is mm-hmm. really cool. <laughs> <laughs> but this isn't the skeleton. No, this is another ghost. The Depression-era child is different from the skeleton, who is different from the old-fashioned woman who appears near the ice machine, reeking of patchouli and sobbing about her beloved. I love this. Mm-hmm. Imagine if we come back as ghosts. People will be like, oh, that old-fashioned woman, and then she's, you know, it's like mom jeans and like a puff <laughs> right. sleeve shirt or something. Right now, I'm in a shirt with little velvet stars on it, and Rowan has a, a necklace with an anatomical heart that is almost the size of my own fist. Yeah. That's the goal. <laughs> Imagine, you know that thing of like, if you die, this could be the outfit you're stuck in forever. I'd so be honored. I'd every be very day happy. You have to dress like you're going to be stuck <laughs> in this forever. And most days I don't. Most days my ghost is wearing a messy bun and a sweatshirt. Smelling of patchouli. We don't have time to dig into this, but if I had to say what our ghosts would smell like, I think yours would be a spiced vanilla. 
Thank you. And I'm guessing mine would be some kind of rose. Oh, a hundred percent. But not old lady rose, not powdery rose. Like Real rose, fresh from the garden with a little bit of the greenery in it. Which is so spooky. That idea of like, oh, I get the the fresh scent of roses, and then Tracy walks through the wall because the architecture got changed, <laughs> and she's not smart enough to figure it out. That's very much the ghost that I will be. The only benefit is I won't walk into them because I'm a ghost. I don't want to talk about walking into walls. <laughs> I have a bruise on this arm from walking into a wall, and then I noticed earlier I have a bruise on this arm from walking into a wall. The other day I walked into a wall. I didn't, like, corner enough. Mm -hmm. And I said, ow, didn't hurt me. I said, ow, for the wall. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, the last ghost at the Chelsea Hotel I'm just going to touch on is Larry the Talkative Hipster Ghost. Tracy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. What? I couldn't find much more on him because people didn't, I guess, want to share his stories. I don't know. But now we need to go find a way to stay there. So you can also show me all the cool places that hopefully they didn't get rid of. And two, we can find the Victorian woman, Larry. Mm, I do want to smell the patchouli lady as well. He's talkative. How are there not stories? I don't understand. He's known for being chatty. He should have a... Okay, okay, okay. I know ghost hunting podcasts are not ideal, but hear me out. This is like the one ghost that is made for <laughs> podcasts. Mm-hmm. And maybe if we, we get a, a giant, amazing, rich person to come in and pay us a lot of money, we can afford to stay at the hotel and record a haunted episode. Here's the thing. I'm that person. I'll do it for only a little money. <laughs> <laughs> I just meant do it for, you know, like someone to come in and pay for it. Oh, yeah. If someone just wants to let us stay at the hotel, Mm -hmm. uh, don't pay me. It's fine. I don't care. No, I don't (laughs) need to make money from it. I mean, if the Chelsea Hotel wants, like, unneeded advertising. Yes, absolutely. On our podcast, we'd be happy to. (laughs) To Chatty Hipster Ghost is so specific. Recent death? It has to be. It has to be. Well, but a hipster is someone who, like, channels older fashions right so it could be like someone who died a long time ago and is wearing a page boy cap and then someone's like yeah nice look he's probably judging your ipa though that's how you know he's a hipster you get out of this right now you leave this podcast right now (laughs) am i wrong you are so right (laughs) okay you ready for our second location yes We are zipping across the country, closer to your area of the world, in San Diego, California. Oh, I'm going there soon. Bring it. Oh, okay. Maybe you could find time to stop at this place. This is the Whaley House. Never heard of it. I hadn't either. Um, I found a bunch of lists. Okay, so here's the thing. Here's a little peek behind the curtain in this episode. When you try to search most haunted places in America, one, every single place calls themselves the most haunted place in America because, you know, how can you quantify that so easily done just say it two every state likes to be very specific about their 10 to 20 most haunted places and people don't like to broaden that to the entire country so it was it was it was fun digging through to find ones that were consistently on a lot of different lists that i would like okay these have stories interesting and also Mm -hmm. if you're making bold claims you could just be like there was a ghost and say nothing more about it could you please add to our website somewhere hidden, most haunted place in America? Yes, I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the Whaley House is an 1857 Greek Revival-style residence. 
a California historical landmark and museum located in Old Town, San Diego, California. It's currently maintained by Historic Tours of America, and it's the oldest brick structure in Southern California. Not that old. No, no, 1857. <laughs> I had, I think I had a barn in the neighborhood I grew up in that was older than that. Yeah, the Pennsylvanians are like, psh, rookie. And then our European listeners are like, okay. <laughs> yeah, we're like, we have a cracked bell with a misspelling that's older than your brick buildings. And the Europeans are like, we have a rock that everyone kisses that's older than your bell. Yes. Once again, this place describes themselves as uh, being recognized as America's most haunted house. Again, I don't recognize by whom? I'll recognize it. Let's dig into their history and then you can decide. So, according to the Whaley House website, on May 6, 1856, Thomas Whaley began construction on his new home and proclaimed, quote, My new house, when completed, will be the handsomest, most comfortable, and convenient place in town or within 150 miles of here. Okay. End quote. Audacity. I know. The two-story home was made from bricks created in Whaley's very own brickyard on Condé Street, Furnished with mahogany and rosewood furniture, Brussels carpets, and costing more than $10,000 upon completion, the Whaley House was overwhelmingly praised as the first of its kind and finest home in Southern California. To make a similar house today, one would need an income of, based on my rough math, uh, about $2 million. I kind of wish you hadn't done that math, but I'm glad you did. (laughs) I needed to know because it kept talking about like it was cost $10,000 upon its completion and blah, blah, blah. And when I did the math for what $10,000 was, it it was like maybe $300,000 in today's cash. And so then I tried to dig into that doesn't feel enough. enough. And then when I was reading through it, it said, well, in that time to have the $10,000, you needed to make what would be today $2 million yearly. Wow. Okay. So no, no spooky haunted house for you. No, not yet. This is so silly. The fact that you mentioned mahogany. I was running a game the other night. It was set in an asylum and the players started this thing where they would pet every door. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's the most TTRPG thing ever. Go on. A lot of times it was like a thank you for like being a door and keeping out the bad. But sometimes it was like a checking thing. Mm -hmm. And one of the characters... uh, smelled the door while they were Mm -hmm. petting it and they were like oh what does it smell like (laughs) what does it feel like and i panicked and i was like it's mahogany (laughs) Uh and then everyone in unison just looked at me and was like mahogany for a door in an asylum and i was like yeah okay it's like pine or something i don't know (laughs) (laughs) like that is one of those moments that only happens in TTRPGs. Yes. And you know what? Maybe it is mahogany. Maybe they built the asylum with the idea of this is going to be this luxury place to heal people. And then instead it just turned into what it was. It was very cool, actually. Everything, it was always raining inside. The carpets were all squishy. The door frames were all messed up because it was nice. And now it's dilapidated. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So besides being the Whaley family home, it was also San Diego's first commercial theater the second county courthouse, and a bilingual general store. Sorry, at the same time that they were living there? 
All of that was not at the same time. The Whaley family left the house and it was kind of sold to the community. And eventually there was this fight between Old Town San Diego using that as its kind of base of operations, kind of the capital courthouse and Newtown San Diego. And eventually Newtown San Diego won. So it's all about zoning. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but the museum does a lot of work to keep the history alive, which I think is really cool. On their website, you see people dressed in historical costumes. They even let you uh, pay to stay over at the house and do paranormal investigations. Tracy. I thought you'd like that. Tracy. I added all these places because I'm willing to go, baby. Oh, yeah? Are you going to stay overnight with me? I'll do one. You get One? one. And then we'll see. But they're all the most haunted place in America. Every single one. <laughs> okay, so I'll tell you what. My one will be the most mm-hmm. haunted place in America. Eh? Okay. <laughs> so we have to <laughs> test them all out to find out by staying overnight. Thank you. <laughs> Over the years, many descendants of the Whaley family lived and died in the house, including Thomas, Anna, and their children Lillian, Thomas, Violet, and Francis. During its restoration periods, which took place several different times throughout the home's history, workers and visitors began to notice strange and mysterious sounds, sights, aromas, and encounters. The first and most well-known ghost that lingered within the house and on the grounds was that of, quote, Yankee Jim Robinson, as he had died right on the spot where the home was built. Baby Thomas, who'd been the first in the family to pass away, had always stayed close by, as reported by many who have visited the home. They could hear tiny footsteps and sounds of him crying or even giggling when no one was in sight. Kid ghosts hit different. They do. It makes me so sad for the kid. Also, it is peak ghost. It is the scariest possible version of a ghost, I think. Kid giggles? It's bad. It's bad also because kids have no, uh, like, they're not fully developed, so their empathy is just non-existent. So they're tiny little sociopaths, and then a tiny little ghost sociopath kicking your shin and then running away. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Terrifying. No privacy. Definitely no privacy with a kid ghost. No! No privacy with a kid, period. Kid ghost doesn't matter. No privacy. They walk through the wall. Mom? Mom? (laughs) Mom? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so others report seeing a young woman lingering on the second floor of the house, and this woman is believed to be Violet, still consumed with sorrow over her miserable marriage. She was the daughter of Thomas and his wife and died by suicide after her marriage ended in divorce. Many claim to have seen Thomas dressed in his frock, coat, and top hat standing on the top of the stairs, or possibly they smell the French perfume that Anna was famous for wearing. Ghost with sense. I think this is the way. I I agree. So if you scroll down just a little bit, you can see a portrait of the Whaley family. It's John, Anna, and then two of their five total children they had. Okay, everyone, keep in mind, I look at Memento Mori death photography often. This photograph is scary. (laughs) (laughs) It's scary because it's that Victorian photograph where... Everything is shades of gray, so their skin shade of gray kind of ends up being the same as the background shade of gray. And the way that they are lit, the children's eyes look so shadowed that they look, frankly, infuriated to be alive. Mm. Mm -hmm. And in Victorian photography, everyone's so stiff because you have to Mm -hmm. sit there for ages and This is the kind of photograph that when 
it's in a movie or in a haunted house or something, suddenly everyone turns or it blinks just a little bit. <gasps> yes. So Anna is on the left looking at them. She's got that center part down the middle, pulled back mm-hmm. hair that she looks beautiful. I would look criminal in. She's holding the baby. Thomas? Is Thomas the baby in this? I'm not sure which of the children. Because we don't know when it was taken. In these photos. Mm-hmm. So, and only two of their five children in it. So was it after some of the other children died? Was it before? I couldn't find it on the website. This was straight from the Whaley House's website. So the baby is wearing one of those dresses that they put babies in to make them easier to change. So we don't necessarily know that this is a baby being gendered girl. Um, Mm -hmm. The baby looks cute and is shockingly still. I'm surprised that the baby isn't blurry. That happens a lot in Victorian photography because they just – My theory is this is a little bit later. It's probably 18 – maybe 18 – Mid-1850s mm, to 1860s, mm-hmm, so okay. at that point, yeah, things were a little bit steadier. Got it, got it, got it. Okay. Um, is it crazy that with my cell phone camera, I'm still like, nah, the baby should be blurry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and the toddler, too. And the toddler's teeny little chair with its little socks. A teeny little high chair with its little socks and its little, like, classic pilgrim meets sailor boy outfit. I yes. don't know what's going on there, but that child looks A, fake, and B, unhappy <laughs> about it. Uh, Robert yes. the doll is called to mind. Yeah. And then John is just... He looks like he's gonna judge your IPA. Well, look at that haircut. <laughs> look at that facial hair. He's wearing a suit, and it's the, one of those collars that's very tall mm-hmm. with the bow tie. But he's got that kind of like swooped over the front hair, long on the sides, mustache, beard. I will say, though, for both these people being alive in somewhere between the 1850s and 1860s in this photo, they're both very beautiful people. This is a good-looking family. Like, even by our modern standards, you know, keeping that, like, all, you know, because a lot of times you look at older photos and you're like, just based on our modern standards, it's not what we find beautiful. These people are what we would find beautiful today. This looks like it was cast today and then made to look vintage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Westworld. Yes. I wonder how much affluence falls into that. Like, people who are affluent just keep marrying beautiful affluent people like celebrities do today or like you get to stay out of the sun or you get basic health care you get you can eat you have access to food mm-hmm. you have the ability to rest you have the ability to stay out of the sun um and if you're at this kind of level of society i think you do have the ability to marry you know, other beautiful people. It's we're not going Habsburgs here. We're not keeping it in the family, so you don't don't have that whole thing happening. When are you going to do an episode on the Habsburgs? You love God. Them. I want to. I do. They're insane. They're insane. Someday, <laughs> let us know if you want the Habsburgs. Okay, I put this in a funny order because Rowan, we're going to zip back across the country and head over to New England. Okay. The next place is the Joshua Ward House in Salem, Massachusetts. Yes, Tracy! <laughs> I feel like, oh, this is a gift. This is the Christmas gift at Halloween mm-hmm. energy. So why don't you, one, uh, describe your history with the house, and two, describe the house itself. I have an image here for you. I don't think I have, like, a ton of history with this house in particular. I've just been to Salem a lot. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> when I was little... I don't know how old I was. It was like the six to eight kind of age range. Okay. My closest friend at the time, like friend broke up with me. 
Um, oh, no. Just before Halloween, which was a critical time because I lived in an area where you couldn't trick-or-treat. So I always had to go trick-or-treating at a friend's and I mm-hmm. was distraught. And <laughs> my parents, in a very cool move, uh, I think they'd been planning a trip and they just mm-hmm. moved it. Uh, and we went to Salem for Halloween. Amazing. And Salem has steadily been becoming more and more what I call like Disney-fied. Like, you know when you go to the yes. Vatican and you're like, oh, look, Jesus Disney, uh, because there's just so many lines and so many – it's it's just yeah. so much. It's so many crowds. It's it, it's all excited about itself. Salem kind of has that going on in that everybody's so enthusiastic to be there at Halloween that there ends up being a lot of lines and crowds and mm-hmm. the everything gets increasingly gimmicky. Mm-hmm. But there are some places that are just – Mm, mm, everything that you wish they would be. Like, there's a shop that's run by actual witches where you can make a broom for your house. Um, oh, my God. And you can put herbs in it and make different oil. Oh, it's so good. I love that. But this is a real haunted place in Salem. This is. So this was built in 1784, and it's one of the first brick homes that was built in Salem. Oh, a noted bricklayer and woodworker at the time, Samuel McIntyre, did all of the house's interior woodwork, including an original staircase that remains his oldest surviving work. It's currently home to the Higginson Book Company and Carlson Realty. Its alarmingly spooky hauntings are therefore relegated to only the employees who are there now and the rare paranormal investigators who are allowed inside. So this isn't a place we can go stay. Okay, we could try. We can try. We have a podcast. <laughs> I really do feel like we could pull the paranormal investigator card more. We don't have a paranormal investigator podcast, but hey, you know what? All it takes is a, a few clicks on our website and suddenly we do. Tracy. <laughs> okay, before you dive down that rabbit hole, Rowan, according to a 1979 article from the Salem Evening News, quote, the Joshua Ward House on Washington Street opposite Front Street was once symbolic of Salem's early prosperity. When George Washington visited the city in 1789, he asked to stay at the house, which was then only a few years old. End quote. In fact, years later, they put a bust of George Washington by the window of that room he stayed in, which caused a flood of reports of passersby seeing a ghost in the window. When it was just a bust of George Washington they placed there. it. <laughs> yeah. That's so good. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's, that's peak. The history of the house dates back further than you might expect when just looking at it because the foundations of the house actually date to the Salem witch trials. The original house once belonged to George Corwin in the late 17th century. So you'll sometimes see it referred to as the George Corwin house or the Joshua Ward house. They're used fairly interchangeably. According to the Salem Witch Museum, quote, 25-year-old George Corwin was the high sheriff during the witchcraft trials of 1692. This important position may have been obtained through nepotism. In his role, Sheriff Corwin escorted the condemned by cart from prison to the execution site at Proctor's Ledge on Gallows Hill. As required by law, Corwin would also confiscate the property of condemned prisoners. Not land, but belongings such as livestock, hay, apples, and corn, and household goods such as kettles, pewter, furniture, and jewelry. 
It is a common misconception that witchcraft accusations were part of a deliberate attempt to gain the land of neighbors or fellow community members, end quote. Yeah, we talked about that a bit in you covering Bridget Bishop. Mm-hmm. Huh. But he was notoriously known for, one, potentially stealing people's property, and two, for the brutal way that he got accused witches to confess. Supposedly, he brought the accused witches to his home and tortured them for information or confession. With all of the torture done at the hands of Sheriff George the Strangler Corwin, within the walls of the Joshua Ward house, it stands to reason that many of the spirits allegedly haunting the place are victims of George Corwin. George the Strangler? The Strangler. Mm-hmm. Oh, I hate it. Yeah, he was apparently just a brutal, violent, awful man. Supposedly. Allegedly. There are three ghosts that are said to haunt this house. I think there are, you know, said to be more, but these are the three that have been kind of named and recognized. So the first is George Corwin himself. The second is Giles Corey, the only person ever pressed to death in Salem and done so at the hands of Sheriff George Corwin. And the third ghost is of a female witch. There have been multiple witnesses who claim that they have been strangled by an unseen pair of hands when visiting the Joshua Ward house. Another strange phenomenon are the reports of warm, half-melted candle wax present in rooms where no candles are supposed to be. Hmm. And perhaps the most frightening of all encounters are that of guests having sudden, unexplained scratches and burns appearing on their arms. On more than one occasion, employees have witnessed inexplicable activity, such as books being yanked from the shelves, cold spots, and otherwise warm rooms, and the mysterious melted wax. Wax. All of this they attribute to Giles Corey's vengeful spirit. Yeah, the guy getting pressed used to be a part of the exhibit at the big mm-hmm. Salem Museum. It was a big thing, and, and I think there there have been ways that that story has been kind of blown out of proportion, but he really was pressed to death by George Corwin. So they think his spirit is there, and they think... George Corwin, the strangler, is also there potentially strangling people. But the last ghost is supposedly that of a witch killed during the trials. Sightings of a female spirit are common occurrences at the Joshua Ward house, especially on the upper floor. It was one stray piece of paranormal evidence that catapulted this particular rogue ghost into international stardom. In the 1980s, Carlson Realty was hosting a massive holiday party when one of the employees snapped a quick Polaroid photo Yes. Good. After shaking it, Carlson expected to see the image of a light-haired woman enjoying the party, but what he saw when he glanced down was something entirely different. A dark-haired woman with rough-hewn features and skin that was so pale and translucent he had to take another look. <gasps> you have the picture! You have the picture! I do, and for the absolute life of me, couldn't find a clearer one. This is all. This is it. This is the picture you can of find. Of course you can't. Those are the rules with ghost stuff. I know. It's the same with, uh, like, Bigfoot. First of all, my guy, everyone knows you're not supposed to shake Polaroids. It's bad for the development. Also, your hazy IPA is lackluster at best. (laughs) (laughs) We're going hard on hipsters today. It's me being a hipster. Uh, This could be a photograph of anything. Okay. (laughs) 
It does look like a person. Well, yeah. You know, I'll, I'll give it that. It could be, Trace, it could be you in bad lighting. That could be any figure of oh, anyone. Yeah. It could be me. <laughs> it, it does clearly have dark hair. I'll give it that. Like, it's dark hair. It's if you well, describe the image first. Okay. So, well, on the one side is the picture of the house, which is three stories. Mm-hmm. It's all brick. It's classic New England. We love to see mm-hmm. it. On the right-hand side is the photograph that's all shades of gray and somehow grainy in the way that VHS is grainy. In in ways that Polaroids typically aren't. Yeah, and it's a figure in all black. Look, Looks like a shift. It's just one of those mm-hmm. dresses that just is dress, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. With very, very white hands and then a face that you only know is a face thanks to the miracle that is the human brain where two mm-hmm. dots plus a sort of fuzzy dot in the middle and a line makes a face. And then the hair is like me when I don't have hair gel. It's like puffed out around the entire person. But it is mostly VHS fuzz. Not yes. so much hair really. Yeah, it's an interesting image. I was really excited when I saw this and it was like, there's a photo of the ghost. And then I saw the photo and was like, there must be a clear, this must just be this article's blurry version. Let me search and search and search and search. And no, this was the best image I could find. And one of the only ones. This image is not all over the place. I need to say it right now. If you're dealing with something paranormal or spooky or cryptidy, you need to get better photographs for the podcasters of future generations. It is your moral imperative. Please and thank you. Okay, so for our last haunted place today, we're going to zip over to the lovely state of Ohio and talk about Franklin Castle. Also known as the Tiedman House, Franklin Castle is a Victorian stone house built in the early 1800s in Cleveland, Ohio. The building has four stories and more than 20 rooms and 80 windows. In the late 19th century, when it was built, Franklin Boulevard was one of the most prestigious residential avenues in Cleveland, and it is reported to be the most haunted house in Ohio. Rowan, I have a picture here of the outside of Franklin Castle. It's very pretty. I I would live there if I had to. <laughs> it's, it's beautiful. It's very light-colored stone, kind of tannish, goldeny in the light. It's got a tower. I'm going to use tower lightly. No one in England or honestly anywhere in Europe come at us. It's like, you know, like mm-hmm. a Victorian house tower. Yes. Uh, and the roof is my favorite part. So it's got two stories that I can see. There's a balcony above what looks to be the front door. And the roof has those like points with the little windows inside of them. It mm-hmm. It's really giving me San Francisco vibes if you're familiar with what those townhouses look like that would probably be a really great starting point for your imagining of this place. Definitely. So this mansion was constructed by Hans Tiedemann, a German immigrant who seemed to have achieved the American dream. He wanted a house both big enough for his family and large enough to temporarily house other German immigrants. To that end, Tiedemann tapped the prestigious firm Cuddle and Richardson, who designed a striking four-story mansion. Tiedemann proudly dubbed his new home Franklin Castle. Sadly, it wasn't long before tragedy struck. In January of 1881, shortly after the family moved in, Tiedemann's 15-year-old daughter Emma died of diabetes. 
soon afterwards, mm-hmm. his mother also passed away. And between 1886 and 1888, he and his wife lost three more children while under the opulent roof of Franklin Castle. Finally, after his wife died in 1895 of liver disease, Tiedemann remarried and sold his mansion to a German family named Mulhauser, and he himself died of a stroke some 13 years later while walking in a park. You scroll down here, I have an old photograph from the 1880s of Hans and Louise Tiedemann with their son, August. Wow, they really got hit with every kind of sadness. Pain after pain after pain. And all they wanted to do was good for the community and others of their own space trying to make it in this country. So on the left-hand side facing me is Hans. Hans is on the left, Luis is in the middle, and their son August is on the right. He – our patriarch has brushed back kind of like fluffy, nice hair. He's got – a beard or maybe a chin strap. It's really hard to tell. This photo is... I think it's a beard. I think it's a beard that's gray in the center and colored kind of in the mustachioed direction. Yeah. He looks like the kind of person that knowing nothing, I would say, I would assume him to be nice or amiable. Yeah, I would too. I think that's why I lean towards this story and why I put it last is that as sad as the events of this family's lives are, the story of the house is one of good intentions Mm -hmm, yeah she looks so small sitting in between them (laughs) they're both standing and she is teeny tiny in the middle and she looks to be a fairly small woman like her shoulders are pretty Mm -hmm. narrow she has kind of a smallish looking head she's got a dress with one of those like blousey peter pan kind of collars Mm -hmm. and she's definitely smiling even though the photo is so faded she also has that center part i would guess she has maybe some curls in her hair And then their son is just like this stoic black blob with hair slicked down just because the photo has faded so much. His face is white. His clothes are black. His hair has a sheen to it. End of physical descriptions. And it looks like the side closest to him, there might be like a plant that has palm fronds or something, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. I want better for them. I know. Me too. What I find fascinating is that reports of hauntings didn't begin until the 1960s. By then, a family with six children named the Romanos had moved into the house and were hoping to turn it into a restaurant. They claimed that the hauntings began right away. On the day the Romanos moved in, two of their children said they encountered a crying girl in white on the third floor. But when Mrs. Romano investigated, no one was there. Woman in white. We love it. Usually it's really heartbreaking. A little girl in white, too. Soon, the family started hearing haunting organ music and heavy footfalls. Two of the older Romano children woke up one night to find something yanking the blankets off their bed, and Mrs. Romano once awoke to find herself screaming on her bedroom floor with an unseen presence screaming beside her. Oh, God. That one got me. Oh, that one God. got me. Screaming beside her? Are you kidding me? But you couldn't see it? All it said is she awoke to find herself screaming on the bedroom floor with an unseen presence screaming beside her. I think the only thing more terrifying than waking up screaming and seeing something is waking up seeing something also screaming. Yeah, that's not good. I don't I don't like it. A priest advised that the Romanos moved out, and in 1974 they did. Just oh, just leave your house. Yeah, you know, just 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 don't 
worry about all the money you spent on it or the cost of moving or the hardship of it. But I mean, Mrs. Rano said the house was getting the best of her. So they did. I mean, they stayed in the house for, I think, close to a decade. Um, and she suspected that she was being haunted by Louise Tiedemann and that the crying girl in white was their daughter, Emma. Mm. Okay. So nowadays, people like to speculate that Hans Tiedemann played a role in the deaths that occurred while he lived in the home. However, there is no real evidence to support that theory. There is nothing in the history to place blame on him. I think he lived a very tragic life. Mm. And I, I, I'm I, like p- protective of him. I'm like, no, there's no evidence to say that he was this monster. So don't put that on him now, hundreds of years later, when he tried to do good for his community. So I wanted to address that rumor because I have not found anything to validate it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the classic, the husband did it, right? Because unfortunately, mm-hmm. in modern true crime, the husband did always do it. But it does sound like they died in like the natural ways that people during that era with less medicine did. I mean, it was known that Emma died of diabetes, which at the time was called sugar sickness, and they didn't have a way to treat it. They knew that there was something wrong in your blood with sugar, but there was they didn't understand insulin. They didn't have any way of treating it, so it was a death sentence. Right. So today, Franklin Castle is a private residence, and its current owners are quiet on any recent hauntings, but the house does remain a popular stop on Cleveland's ghost tours. Though it's only viewable from the outside, haunting aficionados claim the ghost of Louise Tiedemann can be seen staring out the window. I love that the Tiedemanns just said to the Romanos, no, boo to you in particular. In particular? Yeah. Screw you in particular. Like, that one was just, I found very weird, very interesting, so took almost 100 years for recordings of haunting. I don't know if I, – I think people lived in the house. I think the house was kind of given to the community for a bit, so I don't I, – I can't explain that. But then the hauntings were so specific. It was, like, that classic 70s, 80s, like, Amityville. Like, is this a collective cultural consciousness thing? Mm-hmm. How much did that influence it? I mean, at the time, it it's not like it was the 80s satanic panic, so I don't want to put it on and say – that was the reason for the sudden hauntings. But this family, it seemed very distressed and, and they eventually did move out. So I included this because I'm sure our listeners in the Ohio area have heard of this. And if you've been to this house or know anything more, please write in and tell us. And same for all the places. Listen, we have people writing in about dental floss. Thank you so much, Hattie. So everyone, write in about ghosts too. <laughs> yes. So Rowan, are you ready for my ghost story that I wrote this week? Very much so. Okay. Dear New England Paranormal Society, I'm writing to you out of desperation. I don't know what else to do or who else to turn to. I'll try to tell you the story as best as I can remember it, but to be honest, I'm still a bit shaken. For some reason, the one thing that really sticks in my mind is the memory that autumn came all at once that year. I remember the way the world went to sleep one night in summer and woke up in the full swing of fall, how the sweltering heat was replaced by a cool wind that stuck in the air and burrowed into my bones, the gentle caress of nostalgia on one cheek and the cruel whip of wind on the other. It was in this season, on a crisp and cool day, that my wife and I moved into our new home. We were so excited. We saved up for years to buy our first home, and when a nearly 200-year-old house came on the market in our little New England town, well, we knew we had to jump on it. 
So we toured the place and we fell even more in love. We put an offer down as soon as we could. We waived inspection and pushed for closing as soon as possible. In retrospect, that was naive and... Alright, I'll say it. It was stupid. But we were naive and stupid people in love with each other and this beautiful, very old house. So we moved in two months later. It was early October, and the leaves danced a path across the yard, and they were all golds and reds and oranges and browns, and I remember thinking how picturesque it all was. The crunchy New England leaves tripping their way across the lawn of our late Victorian home. It looked like the kind of thing you'd see in a Halloween movie from the 80s. It was perfect. The inside was less perfect. We'd moved in before almost anything was really ready for us. We had plumbing to the bathroom sorted out, and we had a generator for electricity, but we had to rely on the exceptionally gorgeous wood-burning stove for warmth. (laughs) And you could forget about hot water, unless you boiled it yourself, but we didn't care. We sat on the floor in front of the stove on that first night, eating takeout from cheap plastic containers and contemplating all of the changes and renovations that we would be undertaking. But that was the first and last happy night we had in that home. Things started to get weird the next day. But the occurrences became harder and harder to explain away. I would set down an item, leave the room for a few seconds, and when I came back, it would be gone. But shit got real when items started flying around the house. Books would leap off of shelves and land halfway across the room, candles would topple over unexpectedly, plates would crash out of closed cabinets, and so on. The worst was when an entire knife block flew off the counter while I was in the kitchen cooking. That one really shook us up, both, for days. And then we started to see things. At first it was only out of the corner of our eyes, and it was always so quick that you could just explain it away as stress or imagination. But then it became less subtle. What was once a flash of something in the corner of our eyes became shadows on the walls or even shapes moving at the top of the stairs. Footsteps in our bedroom when we were both downstairs, and bumps and clanging when no one else was home. I mean, you get the general idea. My wife was quick to jump to the conclusion that we were being haunted by a ghost that lived in the house. She'd always been into ghosts and crystals and tarot cards and all that other spooky witchy stuff. I was always a bit more... practical. Logical. If I could see it and I could touch it, then it was real. But after everything we'd been through in those first few weeks. Let's say I was more open-minded to the spooky, witchy stuff. So, we sat on the floor of the living room, surrounded on all sides by cardboard boxes waiting to be unpacked, and we held a seance. I wanted to get dressed up in Victorian costumes and make it a whole thing, but my wife told me I needed to take this seriously, and as usual, she was right. We held our hands gently over the planchette on the Ouija board on the floor between us, and my wife began by asking if anyone was there who wished to speak to us. 
At first, there was nothing but the painful, agonizing silence of waiting. Seconds stretched into minutes and then days and even years, all within the trembling of my mind. My breath caught as the planchette began to move. Slowly and gently, it glided persistently toward a single word. Yes. My wife then asked what the spirit's name was. Silence. No movement on the board. She asked into the air what the spirit would like to say to us, and the planchette whipped across the board, spelling out letters in rapid succession. L-E-A-V-E. Leave. As soon as the final letter was spelled out, a candle in the window exploded. I don't mean it snuffed itself out, or it melted too quickly, or it fell over. I mean hot wax splattered around the room instantaneously from where the candle once was. We screamed. We threw the board across the room and ran out of the house, and the only things I had on me were my phone, keys, and wallet, and the rest we just left behind sitting on the floor of the house. We're in a hotel now, staying here until we figure out what the hell we're going to do next. That's why I'm writing to you now. So please, please respond with any help or advice because I think my wife and I just bought a very, very haunted house. And we're scared. Sincerely, Jesse and Alex, and their not-so-friendly new ghost. <laughs> I don't think I would have left. I know. <laughs> I The reason I, like, once a candle explodes, I'm out. A ghost can tell me to leave, and that's one thing. Making hot wax fly across the room? Mm-mm. That's another thing. As a child who liked to play with candles, I think that's pretty low on the list of things that would make me leave. We have a lot of candle drama on this podcast. We do. I'm thinking of the Yule Lads and how parents have to just chomp on a candle to prove their existence. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Go listen to our... Uh winter stories episode <laughs> i will never forget about that i think about that weirdly often anytime anyone i know is like i want to have a kid i'm like but do you want to chomp on a candle you have to eat candles if you're a parent you heard it here first ladies and gentlemen <laughs> <laughs> i the visual of having a seance surrounded by all your moving boxes, mm -hmm. that because it's the flip of that image that's supposed to be so romantic, like the couple, you know, eating takeout on the floor when they just moved in. It's mm -hmm. love. It's really, it's stress, but whatever, it's love. It's love. <laughs> it's cute. It's sweet. It's, you know, there's a montage playing, so it's only the good parts. Exactly. <laughs> And I, I also love that they were just casually prepared at any moment to have a seance, because that's relatable. Oh, the wife character is very much you. It, oh, it, thanks. It, like, it, not intentionally, but, like, as I was reading it, I'm like, yeah, Rowan does fit the bill of this character, except for the part of, like, being freaked out. You would just be excited. Thrilled. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the perfect Halloween episode, because it's just gifts and gifts and gifts and gifts. It's just all the spooky gifts. It's, it's, this was really fun to research. So in, in my plan of trying to convince you to go to all the haunted places mm -hmm. and turning us into a paranormal investigation podcast, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Spencer and I uh, 
keep talking about getting a paranormal investigator certification from the IMHS Metaphysics Institute. <gasps> you can get a badge. You can get a badge. Can, wait, can the three of us do that together? That's really fun. Yeah, I think Sage wants to do it too. Sage like is a- more than welcome. Anyone's welcome. Bring them all in. I think actually Sage wants to get a full degree from them. You can get a degree in like ufology. I think mm-hmm. that's how UFOlogy is. Said. Ufology. U- ufology. Yeah, ufology. Uh, but I just want that paranormal investigator certification. Me too. Okay. Well, now I know what I'm going to spend my free time doing. I know it's it's very affordable, and I think it's low time commitment. And I also, <laughs> I think it's I just think it's a low lift. A gift. Again, it's gifts. It's imagine when you're at a party and people be like, what do you do? You could say, I work in IT. You could say I'm a podcaster or mm. you could say, I'm actually a paranormal investigator. I'm a certified paranormal investigator. Yes! <laughs> yes! <laughs> oh my God. What? Okay. That was a gift for me, but uh, now I need another gift because it's time for you to tell me something good. Okay. Okay. My something good mm-hmm. is that I spent last night painting a dyeing a white corset to have a blood stain down the front in the shape of a heart because I'm doing Queen of Hearts for Pixel Circus tomorrow, but I'm also doing it for Halloween because like why not? You you can't waste that opportunity. It's right there. Uh I'm obsessed mm-hmm. with Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. I think I have five or six copies of that book, including the uh, version with footnotes. Mm. Historical facts built in. <laughs> there, are, there are a few things that are very you in my mind, and Alice in Wonderland and Medusa are two of them. Thank you. And vintage Ouija boards. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so I am doing... I have a human heart. I am wearing it as mm-hmm. we're recording this episode. I've got fake blood. I've got this now blood dyed corset. My whole bathroom was oh covered in little tiny red splatters. Oh my God. What a nightmare. It looks like I went full Patrick Bateman mm-hmm. on my like vintage green tile bathroom. <gasps> so it's it was very difficult to get out. Were you able to? Um, yes, mostly. Mm, mm-hmm. I'm just committing to a little bit of blood in my grout. Uh, I unfortunately got a few little splatters on my shower curtain that are just now there to add ambiance. Color. Um, <laughs> I didn't think it was going to be this messy. And then you hit a point where you're like, it's for the art. And then later you who has to clean it up. Yes. It's like, was it for the art? <laughs> the <whole>? Yes. <laughs> But it did bring me immense joy. I saw a picture of it. You sent me a picture of it as soon as it was hanging and and dripping and drying. Tracy, the blood got so much worse after I sent you a picture because there was so much dripping. Turns out I'm really good at blood. Finish the (laughs) sentence. Finish the sentence. Turns out I'm really good at making bloody clothing. (laughs) (laughs) I just needed you to say it out loud. If you, too, would like to have bloody clothing, send it here. It's all organic. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Tracy, tell me something good. All right. 
My something good is that I am almost finished, but not quite finished. The A Court of Fae and Flowers that Dimension 20 put out. Mm. Um, and I'm a couple episodes behind. I know, I know. So no spoilers. Don't don't send anything. Uh, by the time this episode comes out, I should be finished it. But Rowan is still a few episodes behind. We've been chatting as she's catching up. And I just got to say, because I know you know... Um, the cast members of that show and um a bunch of them and they're all amazing people from what i hear yeah everyone that i know in that cast abria omar serena they're all the best people but also in that game they are playing at like the height of everyone's ability like they're just topping out no one could be better Every time there's a bird pun (laughs) on that show get ready you got more coming for you (laughs) I lose it. Like, it feels brand new to me every single time. It doesn't wear off. Truly, this was made for me. So this is the premise of this is really that it is it's D&D meets fairies meets Regency. It is all romance and role play. And I'm like, this was just a gift that they made for me and me alone. And every single person in the cast and Abria as the DM just gives every character and every NPC such a rich life and a rich story. It's it is watching masters of their craft do their thing, and it's it's just so delightful, and it's bringing me so much joy. And to know the people behind it are such wonderful people, just is like an extra level of awesome. My favorite thing is when Abria gets that look and she goes, "I'm gonna need you to roll for that." <laughs> <laughs> could not possibly imitate the way that she says it but you just you just know (laughs) yes and well and i love how much she and this is like eating up everyone's chaos i have never seen a dm as prepared as a bria like there's a bit early on that you've seen that we talked about where she's like you know if you if you stay ready you don't have to get ready and (laughs) she's always ready it's so anyway go watch a quarter fan flowers on dimension 20 um it's on dropout and it has brought me just uh, an immense amount of joy this last week it's so good. And it's so pretty. The entire so team. Pretty. I'm really excited also for Dimension 20's Never After. Because horror. I'm nervous but excited for it. So Casey and Rowan promise to watch it first and tell me if it's too horror for me. Casey's going to be a better judge, but knowing what you like and constantly inflicting horror on you against your will, really, <laughs> I, I feel prepared. <laughs> I'm so excited. The vibes are so good. The vibes are amazing. The vibes are amazing. So I think we did it. This was our Haunted America variety show. And next week, guys, it's going to be more spooky. Oh, it's yeah. It's going to be a continuation <laughs> of this theme. Yes. The, the thing about October is I feel like you and I get to just really be self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So welcome. Thank you for indulging in ourselves yes (laughs) these are for us and we're so glad you like them too because there's more coming your way but for now thank you so much for joining us and remember that stories grow with the telling so if you like what we do tell a friend or tell a foe and we'll see you soon okay Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our logo is by Jamie Harrison, and our music is by Taylor Ash. 
If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch. Or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating. Or scrap scraps of cotton. Of cotton. <laughs> 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 <laughs>